Welcome everyone to the Planet Pantry Podcast, a podcast about the pantry staples that people reach for every day around the world to make the foods they love. This is episode two in our three-part series about moldy soy ferments with a specific focus on the history of soy sauce as we know it today. This week, we're picking up where we left off as we follow the Jiangs and Daochu of China as they make their way across Asia. We'll especially be following as they make their way to Japan via Korea to give us the miso and shoyu that we're so familiar with today. And if you stick around to the end, you'll be treated to some clips of a beautiful song about Korean donjang. So without further ado, let's get into it. So yeah, last week we left off with jangs and daochu, or soy nuggets, and from this point of origin many paths break off and go around Asia where we see the emergence of all sorts of different and equally fascinating condiments and sauces. But our interest is in the exploration of the origin of our kikoman packets and the soy sauce that we generally find in the grocery store in the west. But I highly encourage you to go out there and try all of the different varieties that exist from all over the world. If you want to take a deeper dive into the history of soy and soy sauces and a wide variety of other products, I highly recommend the Soy Info Center. They have a website, thesoyinfocenter.com, and it's basically a compilation of the works of William Shirtliff, Akiko Oyagi, and a number of other soy history researchers. One of my favorite things about humanity is watching as individual people or groups of people just devote their entire lives to the most specific things and reveal how what might seem like a small detail of the human experience can actually have such an amazing impact on our existence. And the Soy Info Center is a perfect example of people doing exactly that with soy. So check it out, a lot of the materials are available for free on their website, but if you'd like to support them, definitely consider buying some of their books. The Book of Miso is probably one of the most informative books available on miso and these sorts of products written in English. So this is a very big world, and especially here in the West, we generally don't have a very good understanding of the massive variety of these kinds of products that exist, and all the different ways that they can affect our cuisines. Whether we're using Philippine toyo to make pancit or sisig, or if we're just trying to add a little bit of depth or richness to something as familiar as beef bourguignon, these sauces can bring a lot to our cooking. So in that spirit, let's just quickly go over a few of the different sauces that exist throughout Asia. Starting with uh, the one I just mentioned, Philippine toyo. Toyo is a thinner, saltier soy sauce that's made with ratios kind of along the lines of Japanese shoyu. It's often mixed with calamansi juice or vinegar, something to give it a little acidity and that makes for a great marinade or dipping sauce. And it's at the core of a lot of very famous Philippine dishes, like as I mentioned before, sisig, pansit, and even the famous adobo. And brands like Datu Puti can actually be found pretty easily in the US at a lot of Asian grocery stores. You can even find one with calamansi juice already mixed in or in a combination pack with a bottle of vinegar. But one of my absolute favorite sauces in this category is Indonesian ketchup, which is traditionally made by cooking black soybeans and then leaving them under hibiscus leaves while they gather all of the molds and bacteria necessary to get the fermentation started. 
including Aspergillus oryzae and Aspergillus wenti. Once they've been inoculated, as is the case with most soy sauces, they're submerged in a salty brine. But what sets Indonesian ketchup apart is that after the fermentation has finished and the mash has been pressed, the final soy sauce is then reduced along with a lot of palm sugar to thicken it into a delicious syrupy consistency. And this is often done with spices like cinnamon or star anise to give this delicious, warm, comforting flavor, which is great for so many different applications. One thing you'll find is that as these recipes move farther and farther away from their origins in China, people take more creative license with the products. And Vietnam is a great example of this. Vietnam is mostly known for their fish sauce, and that is absolutely the more popular condiment in the nation. But soy sauce is still used pretty widely, and the native Vietnamese soy sauces are pretty far cry from anything that we would be familiar with growing up with Chinese takeout. Rather than the black color that we're familiar with and the thin consistency of more common soy sauces in the West, Vietnamese Tong Khu Da and Tong Ban are thicker and take more of a reddish brown kind of color. And that's because whereas many soy sauces are filtered and pressed to achieve that thin brown liquid that we're so familiar with, Vietnamese Tong Khu Da and Tong Ban, the two more popular varieties of the country, are pureed rather than pressed. So they can often resemble more of the unfiltered maromi mash in a shoyu, and the thicker versions can even look like a wet miso. But these are very hard to find in the United States. I live in a city with a lot of Asian grocery stores, and I haven't been able to find any of them yet. But I'd imagine they'd be very delicious, and that they'd add texture to a lot of dishes as well as taste. So those are three sauces and condiments that I think represent the great variety of these products around Asia. And I encourage you again on the Soy Info Center to check out all of the information they have on all the different varieties of soy sauce. And if you just go to an Asian grocery store, you'll see all of the different things that people have managed to do with what is effectively a pretty simple base of just soybeans, sometimes wheat, water, and salt as well as the molds that can mostly just be caught from the air. But getting back to the story that we're following today as we explore how the amazing products of Daoche and Jiang move from China eastwards to Korea, we need to explore what's been going on in Korea this entire time. Because although what has become Korean culture today has absolutely been influenced by Chinese culture, the process that Koreans use to make donjang and ganjang, their versions of soy sauce and soybean paste, are definitely uniquely Korean. So in order to do this story justice, I think we need to go back to a time when humanity was just a group of disparate communities fighting day in and day out about the most mundane things and lacking the vision to see the greater picture of what life was about. Hwanung was the son of Hwanin the supreme deity of Korean mythology, or at least this specific Korean mythology. He lived in the kingdom of heaven and wanted for nothing. If he ever needed anything, all he had to do was ask and his father would provide it for him. But he would often find himself getting glimpses of the earth through the clouds and admiring the beautiful landscapes and the people who were constantly fighting but in which he saw so much potential. One day, he asked his father if he could be allowed to leave the kingdom of heaven to establish a home on earth. 
His father granted him this wish and said that he would even be allowed to take 3,000 followers along with him, and those followers included some pretty important deities. Hwanun arrived on a sandalwood tree in present-day North Korea on Bakdu Mountain, and he immediately began his work by founding the town of Azadal, where he would begin to settle the petty conflicts of humankind. One day, a bear and a tiger arrived at his sandalwood tree seeking an audience with Hwanung. When he granted this audience, he was met with an odd request. The bear and tiger had become bored with their existence of animals and they were increasingly jealous of the humans which had become so successful and prosperous since the arrival of Huanung, and they wanted to be turned into humans themselves. Surprisingly, Huanung agreed to fulfill this request, but under one condition. During the meeting, the tiger had presented himself as impatient, and Huanung saw this as reason to test them both further, to make sure that they were up to the standard which he had created for his precious humans. He devised a test in which the bear and tiger would go into a cave of his choosing and only eat garlic and mugwort which he provided for 100 days. If they emerged, they would emerge as humans. The tiger and bear went into the cave and immediately the tiger became impatient. The tiger had finished his garlic and wanted to leave the cave to see if the 100 days had passed, thinking that Huanung had left them in the cave longer than required as part of the test. But the bear insisted that the time wasn't near nearly complete and that the tiger remain in the cave with her. But eventually, the tiger broke down and left, and coming into the bright light, he looked at his hand and saw the palm of a tiger. He tried to re-enter the cave, but Huanung stopped him, informing him that he had failed the test. Huanung then waited outside the cave for the remainder of the test to see if the bear would complete it. And after the hundred days had passed, Huanung excitedly yelled into the cave that the bear had completed and that she may come out. She slowly emerged from the cave and when she encountered the same bright light as the tiger, she covered her eyes but saw that it was a human hand that had reached out. Excitedly, she went about her new life as a human and Huanung watched with joy as she experienced all the things that she had hoped for. But shortly after her transformation, she realized that she was lacking some of the core elements of being human namely family. She went to Huanung and expressed her desire to have a child, and then Huanung professed his love for her, saying that he loved her since she first came to him as a bear, and that he himself would happily marry her. And shortly after their marriage, they gave birth to a child, and this child was named Dangun. Dangun went on to found Joseon, the civilization that would eventually give rise to Korea. This event continues to be celebrated to this day every year on October 3rd, the birthday of Dangun. Dangun as Founding Day, and Dangun continues to be revered as one of the most important characters in Daijongism, a Korean national religion which has seen a bit of a resurgence since the later Japanese invasions. So, as usual, I encourage you to go out and read about Korean history and mythology and form your own opinions on this stuff, because I am by no means an authority on Korean history. I just think it's nice to acknowledge a little bit of the history that's associated with the parts of the world that would eventually give us so many of the foods that we love and use every day. That said, this story continues with the slightly controversial character of Gija, who comes about 1200 years after the founding of Gojoseon, which whereas Joseon sort of refers to Korea in general, Go is just added as a prefix to separate the ancient from more modern history. Gija was supposedly the virtuous uncle or relative of the final leader of the Shang dynasty, 
which you might remember from last week as the second Chinese dynasty after the originating Xia dynasty. After the Shang dynasty fell to the succeeding Zhou, Gijia traveled to Joseon. Some records from the Han dynasty say that he was actually enfiefed or given control over Joseon by the Zhou. But that's part of why this character is controversial. It's really hard to pin down his exact story. But regardless of how he got there, he's credited with bringing a lot of Chinese technology and culture to the eastern Joseon. And this landmark in Korean history brings us from Gojoseon or ancient Joseon to Gija Joseon, which would last for the next thousand years. And during this time, the various small city-states and communities around the Korean peninsula would continue to consolidate into a prosperous Bronze Age civilization by no later than the 4th century BCE. This period of Korean history was brought to an end when the Qin Dynasty of China fell. At this point, a Chinese general by the name of Wimo would defect and pledge allegiance to the Joseon Empire. Despite this show of humility, Wimo would later on overthrow the Joseon government and declare himself emperor. This would set into motion a series of conflicts, a temporary military rule by China, and would eventually end with Korean being broken up into three independent states, Goguryeo in the north, Bakje in the southwest, and Sila in the southeast. This period of Korean history is known as the Three Kingdoms period, and it lasted from around 57 BCE all the way up until 668 AD, when Korea was temporarily unified under the state of Sila. During this time, around the 3rd century, Buddhism would arrive via China from India and the Silk Road and would establish itself as one of the major religions of Korea. Also, sometime around this period, the Korean people would develop their method for making soy sauce and soybean paste that they still use today. This method employs what are known as meiju. Meiju are blocks made out of cooked soybeans that are mashed and then pressed into a brick shape, or occasionally a ball or a round shape, depending on the preference. These bricks are then dried out. Historically, this was done on undol floors, which is an ancient system for heating floors using a fire that would be outside and a series of channels bringing the heated gas from the fire under the floor in a way that's safe and not going to set your house on fire, but brings just enough warmth in the winter and just enough warmth to slowly dry out your meju blocks. After a week or two of sitting on these heated floors, the blocks would look craggly and very dry. They would then be hung by rice hay, and over the next couple of weeks, they would gather all of the necessary molds and bacteria, including aspergillus molds and bacillus subtilis, to prepare for the long fermentation ahead. After fermentation, the mash would be pressed to separate the paste, or donjang, from the soy sauce, or ganjang. Both of these condiments are at the core of Korean stews, or jjigae. And if you were to add a little bit of barley or wheat into the meju blocks when you were producing them and make a few changes to the process, you would end up with gochujang, which is one of the more famous condiments to come out of Korea into the West over the past few decades. And that will almost definitely be the subject of a future episode, accompanied by a more in-depth look into the meju-making process, because it really is a fascinating and versatile process. It's also a great example of the Korean concept of sonmat, or hand taste. This is the idea that the hand of the maker and their environment, wherever they happen to be when they're making their 
food has a strong impact on the end result. This concept is especially prominent in fermented foods like kimchi, doenjang, and ganjang. While all of this was going on in Korea, a hunter-gatherer civilization known as the Jomon were thriving on the archipelago of what would become known as Japan. The Jomon began to live more sedentary lifestyles around 13,000 BC, cultivating crops and creating intricate pottery. And by around 900 BCE, fishing communities in the southern island of Kyushu and other surrounding islands were increasingly communicating with the Joseon. And as this communication increased, so did immigration. And the people from the Korean peninsula brought with them technologies from China and Korea, including weapons, tools, bronze, iron, and important practices like rice cultivation. Over time, the Yayoi people who were coming from Korea became the dominant presence on the archipelago. Although this isn't thought to be the result of conflict, but rather relatively peaceful coexistence and the mixing of the two population. And travelers from the Korean peninsula brought with them Buddhism to the archipelago and established it as the main religion relatively quickly. Japan managed to reconcile Buddhism with their native Shinto religion, which revolved around the worship of kami, or local spirits. Kami can represent a wide range of things, from animals to landscapes to concepts, and hints to this amazing religion can be seen in Japanese art that we might be familiar with in the West, like the films of Hayao Miyazaki. And to this day, Shintoism and Buddhism are practiced alongside each other. It was with the popularization of Buddhism that came an edict from Emperor Saga in the 9th century banning the consumption of meat outside of fish and birds. This decree would have massive long-term impacts on Japanese food culture as it became the norm all the way up until the Meiji Restoration, when in 1872, Emperor Meiji lifted the order. The first example of a soy-based sauce in Japan was hishio, which was effectively a jang, a chunky, thick sauce resembling the maromi mash involved in modern shoyu production. This means that it probably looked similar to the chunky Vietnamese tongban that we mentioned earlier. A legend tells the story of the Zen priest Kakushin, who went to the temple of the Golden Mountain in Sung Dynasty, China, and it is said that there he learned how to make Kinzanji Miso, which is still commonly used today. Over time, he discovered that the liquid that pools on top of the vats in which miso was fermented made a delicious cooking liquid. This is what would become known as tamari, which translates to mean roughly accumulate referring to the pools that accumulate during miso production. Eventually, batches of miso came to be made with more water with the intention of producing more tamari, and technologies were invented to maximize the tamari collected from each batch, and recipes were also developed calling for more miso to be mixed with water, cooked, and then strained to make a liquid soy sauce. But the liquid produced as a byproduct of miso production is something special and one of the great treats afforded only to those who produce their own miso today. Nearly 600 years after miso had emerged as a uniquely Japanese product, shoyu emerged as a soy sauce that wasn't simply a byproduct of miso production, but its own unique process. Shoyu took a while to catch on and only really became an important staple in Japanese cuisine around the late 16th century. The process for making shoyu, as described in texts from this time, is very similar to the process we use today. A koji of soybeans and barley was mixed with a salty brine and fermented for several months. This is a process 
that would continue to be refined for generations until the recipe that we have today was standardized in around 1760. And that recipe uses a one-to-one -one ratio of cracked roasted wheat and steamed soybeans. Aspergillus orizae is grown on these grains to make koji, which is then mixed with a salty brine and aged for several months. After aging, it's put through a press to remove the sought-after dark liquid. We've seen miso evolve alongside shoyu, or rather we saw shoyu di diverge from miso to become its own thing. And today, miso itself is made by growing koji directly onto rice and then mashing it together with soybeans and around 12% give or take by weight of salt. This still produces some tamari, so try to keep it if you do make miso yourself. These products went through many changes before becoming the distinct pantry staples that we're familiar with today. Next week, we'll go over the technological and artistic innovations that brought us to the standards which define shoyu to this day. We'll also explore how this progress was made alongside some of the most tumultuous, interesting, beautiful, and brutal times in Japanese history. From the Sengoku period of constantly warring daimyo through Tokugawa era and the Meiji Restoration right up to the modern era, people have been refining and ultimately industrializing their soy sauces. We'll also take a look at the recent resurgence of craft shoyu and show you how even in the modern industrialized world you can still find the good stuff. But for now, as promised, I leave you with the clips that I ripped off a Korean news show of a choir singing about Donjang.